Though it was already mentioned, it's certainly appropriate again to make note of the appreciation we could have to God for allowing us to come together tonight, the character of health that we do enjoy, and the marvelous blessing of a beautiful day He's made. We, in fact, for several Wednesday evening or Sunday evenings now, have been turning our attention to the book of Revelation. And in fact, in this grand finale of the Bible, we appreciate that once this book is completed, the curtain of inspiration was forever closed. There were no books written following this one that were inspired of God. And is it not fitting to appreciate as we come to this one and as God unfold the panoramic view of future history from that time and even gave us a marvelous image and vision of the character even of the Day of Judgment, what a great comfort it is to those that are the blessed and faithful, those who've placed their trust in Him, but on the, on the other hand, how penetratingly profound and how incredibly urgent it paints the picture for those who are unprepared. In fact, this evening, as we come to the 23rd installment in this series of lessons on the Revelation, we are in chapter 21, and in fact, we will begin at verse number 1 in just a moment. To do that, might I ask you to note some introductory thoughts that shall lead us as we prepare for that study of the opening 14 verses of Revelation 21. So far as we've looked at the Revelation... It is fair to at least briefly remind ourselves of the nature of its major divisions. In chapter 1 of this book was an introductory message about the nature of Christ, the one whose message this is. In chapters 2 and 3, the specific letters to those seven churches of Asia. Then in chapters 4 through 11, the first of the two major sections of the book were presented. And in that section, all of the matters surrounded the seven-seal book, the loosing of the seals and the information to be seen thereby. Then in chapters 12 through 20, we appreciated that tremendous struggle between good and evil, God and Satan, heaven and hell. And we saw most powerfully and without any question the triumphant victory of all that is of God. That only leaves two chapters, chapters 21 and 22. As we come to these, we shall see rather directly that they surround the new heaven and the new earth. And that's the title of the lesson tonight. Taken from the reading that Lucas presented a few moments ago from Revelation 21.1, John saw a new heaven and a new earth. We shall labor tonight to gain a picture of what does that represent? What is the new heaven and new earth? Might I submit to you, though, even as we begin, two major things that we might keep in mind. First has to do with where chapter 20 ended. We noticed that last Lord's Day evening. The last five verses of Revelation 20 sat before us and presented to us the day of judgment. But might we remember who, together with, of course, the beast and the dragon and the false prophet, were cast into the lake of fire. It was all of those whose names were not written in the book of life. It's somewhat significant. And in fact, it should be to each of us to note that just as surely as that chapter ends that way, one obvious and clear question would be, what about those whose names are in the book of life? May I submit to you that chapters 21 and 22, the closing two chapters in all the Bible, answer that question. Thus, with the devil, all of those who are his henchmen forever cast into the lake of fire. The last two chapters thus bless us tremendously by presenting to us the fate and the final end in all of its glorious bliss of those whose names are in the book of life. And so I invite you tonight to begin with me in Revelation 21.1 and let us look at that final end. And of course you and I desire to be amongst that number. 
as we begin to do so, let us, in fact, look at these verses somewhat slowly, one verse at a time, and make a few comments along the way. First of all, in verse number 1, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. We have noted rather frequently throughout this book that John quite often made usage of the word saw, something that he was privileged to see. And what's more, he wrote that or penned that for us, and hence when we read what he wrote, we by our imagination can visualize what he saw. John saw a new heaven and a new earth. And isn't it interesting in verse 1, he gives us the reason why. For the first heaven and first earth were passed away. We noted, even in the last lesson, Revelation 20, verse 11, that this physical earth on which we currently reside is not a permanent place. It is not eternal in its characteristic. Rather, we appreciate that it too shall one day vanish or disappear, having been burned completely in the greatness of the finality when our Savior returns. In 2 Peter 3, verse 10, a text we've noted previously in regard to that point, it is there stated that, the day of the Lord shall come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the earth and all the works that are therein shall be burned up. Isn't it a significant thing to notice how that harmonizes so powerfully with the text before us? This present heaven and earth, as we understand them, shall be no more. We might pause for just a moment and note that when it makes reference to heaven, that does not mean now the very place of God's throne. The scriptures unfold for us three heavens in their totality. There is that heaven which is, of course, the very place of God's throne, Psalm 11, verses 3 and 4. There's also the heaven described as outer space, if you will, to you and me. It's where the stars are, according to Genesis chapter 1. But there's also the heaven identified as that place where the birds fly. Jesus himself made reference to that point in Matthew the 6th chapter. In fact, as we look then at those heavens that shall be destroyed, it is, of course, those latter two that you and I mention. For they are made of those atomic and elemental constituents of which we learn of in chemistry classes and other courses like physics. But Peter reminded us that it's those very elements that shall be dissolved completely and absolutely in verse 10 of 2 Peter 3. Thus, when we arrive at this text, might we notice one of the final things that I ask you to note with me. Namely, the prophecies from the Old Testament in which this very fact has already been noted. In Isaiah 65, verse 17, that messianic prophet of the Old Testament foretold very clearly from the very words of God himself when God said, I create new heavens and a new earth. One chapter later in Isaiah 66, 22, one more time before the curtain closed on that book, God again reminded that there would come a time, future tense verb, when he would create new heaven and a new earth. We notice that even John still looks into the future and sees that still yet to be, even as Revelation came to its close. We can understand powerfully, amazingly, that there's a significant amount of false teaching relative to the fact of what is this new heavens and new earth. This evening, before we complete verse 14, we shall have been able to affirm that with rather clear clearness and with greatness as well. In fact, to lead us toward that end, let's look at verse 2. Revelation 21, verse number 2. And I, John, saw the holy city, 
New Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. We notice that John had previously mentioned a new heaven and a new earth is what he saw in verse 1. But notice now in verse 2 he says he saw a holy city. Notice the holy city, the new Jerusalem. And what's more, coming down from God out of heaven and interestingly, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. We have previously noted some interesting references to ideas like that, that latter one in this book. But consider the following with me. A few points are worthy of our notation. First, this is in extreme contrast to that city of which we read, especially in chapters 17 and 18. In those chapters, the thrust and emphasis was upon Babylon. We noted that Babylon was obviously arrayed against God, and she met her rather fateful end as she was ultimately destroyed. We remember that God did that by His power, and it was His will that it be done so. Now, the city is not named Babylon, it's Jerusalem. How often have you and I been reminded throughout the sacred pages, the Word of God, that Jerusalem played an especial role in the Old Testament era. She was the capital city of the empire from the time of David onward. In fact, prior to that time, in the days of the judges, for example, and even in the days of King Saul, Jerusalem was not a city of especial renown, though it had been mentioned previously. But once David made that his capital, and it was the hub or central city of the nation of Israel, she was a very special place. And in 1 Kings 9, verses 2 and 3, God especially said of Jerusalem and especially the temple there, that is where my name shall dwell. From that time onward, then how special she was. When our Savior walked on the, on the face of this earth, it was that city which He so often visited. And that place, because the temple was there, where the Jews would assemble and congregate as commanded in the Old Testament. Isn't it easy then to see, concerning Jerusalem, that this new Jerusalem is sufficiently of us to note that it's not the physical city of Jerusalem. There are very, very many those are the premillennial concept who think that Jerusalem holds a very special importance even in future era because there are supposedly Jesus is supposed to reign. As we've already noted in this series of lessons as we started chapter 20 especially, that's not so. In fact, there's no single element of the entire premillennial concept that's true according to the Bible. Jesus is not going to reign from Jerusalem ever again. If He did so, as we noted previously, Jeremiah himself must have been a false prophet. Jeremiah 22, verse 30. We notice though here this new Jerusalem is described as coming down from God out of heaven. Interestingly enough, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. What is it of this which, what is it that this speaks of? If you would, you may quickly go and read with me a verse later in this chapter and then we might discuss those two ideas together. Verse number 10, And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. When we read that verse, it clearly sounds very similar to the one we just read. And isn't it interesting that by piecing those together, along with these other facts of the chapter, we really aren't left too much to doubt the fullness of what this means. It's not the literal city of Jerusalem upon earth. Notice, first of all, it's coming from God out of heaven. 
In other words, the idea, plan, and revelation of this matter, whatever she is, is the fullness of God's plan and His providential will. Quite often, the Bible refers to things as they're coming from God as if He originates the concept or thought of it. Not that He literally casts down from heaven the fullness of this entity and miraculously creates something new. It originates in the divine plan and being of God. Is not the church in many ways stated in that same way? After all, in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, we note there where Isaiah prophesied the mountain of the Lord's house would be established in the top of the mountains. That was the plan and idea of God that it should be so. Micah 4, verses 1 through 3. And then the establishment of the church, that originated entirely in the mind and the reality of God's providential will. Human hands never touched it. It was not established when humans said it would be. It was not founded the way humans said it would be. God founded it at His time, at the right place, in the proper fashion. Might that help us note the same here? In fact, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. We noted in chapter 19 about the marriage feast of the Lamb. We saw there that that was representative of those who have arrayed themselves as the bride with Christ Jesus as the bridegroom. He is the Lamb. Thus, those who are in that position are none other than Christians. And the scene of Revelation 21 is the church not on earth, but in heaven. This holy city that is now in view, this precious description of verse number 2, the holy city... This new Jerusalem is representative of the church in heaven, not on earth. This earth has long been burned up by that time. And isn't it a fascinating thing, as we shall see shortly, the beauty and amazing features to be seen otherwise in the Scriptures? In fact, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 10, what was it that was said of the faithful man Abraham? He looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Abraham even was looking for a city. Did he ever find it? The city had as its foundations those matters that were beyond the earthly scenes of this existence. Even Abraham, as the father of the faithful, was desirous of finding himself one day in the precious and friendly confines of none other than heaven itself. In Hebrews 11, verse 16, we notice again speaking about a heavenly city we see again how easily that sounds like the text before us. One chapter later in Hebrews 12, verse 22, again there's a speaking about those innumerable angels who find themselves in the very place and powerful presence of none other than the heavenly city. Might we say that you and I also, like Abraham, long for that heavenly city to be a part of the Jerusalem, not here on earth, but the one beyond. The one where, as we shall shortly see, is without care, is without troubles, is without difficulties, afflictions, death, and trial. To make those comments does lead us quickly to verse number 3. While those thoughts are fresh on our mind, let us read that together too. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. As we come to that scene, perhaps this would be an opportune time to look at a picture. This is an artist's rendition, an artist's conception of some of the matters contained in Revelation 21. 
the exact shape of that we shall see a bit later in this chapter. Cubicle, the same distance length on each side is what's presented a bit later beginning in verse 15. But notice with me the radiance, the overwhelming, glorious beauty. Now again, the artist pictured it as coming from God out of heaven. We've already learned that that does not mean that it physically is going to leave heaven and reside upon earth. Again, that is representative of this concept that that which is being described has come from God and it represents the church, you and me, in heaven. But notice how verse 3 helps us with that too. In this description here, John heard something. It says he heard a great voice out of heaven. Frequently, that which John has heard has been so greatly reminding of the essence of what God really is. And is it not true here as well? The tabernacle of God is with men. Immediately, the usage of that word tabernacle reminds us of its scene in the Old Testament. It had, for instance, a holy place, a most holy place. There was a, tabernacle, there was a courtyard that surrounded that tabernacle. That was the place where the offering of burnt offering was held. Especially with regard, though, to the most holy place, as described in the book of Exodus, that was the place where, in fact, God's people were to recognize the symbolic nature of His presence with them. The tabernacle of God is with men. God had said in Exodus 25, verse 22, I will meet with you on the mercy seat which mercy seat was in fact placed in the most holy place. Thus, this matter of then, the tabernacle of God is with men, is a wonderful statement of the absolute fellowship of this church, God's people with Him. Here on earth, we understand and appreciate His fellowship with us, but it is not yet quite absolute. You and I, you see, have never yet seen the Christ. We've never yet been in the absolute presence of God. But don't we look forward to it? Can we not, in fact, look longingly and amazingly to that day when all the hopes and aspirations of our spiritual existence shall meet their fulfillment and we shall be ushered into the absolute presence forevermore of God and His Son? That's the very idea of this absolute fellowship in verse number 3. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and what's more, He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people and God Himself shall be with them and be their God. This sounds a bit like Ezekiel 43.7 where a promise or a foretelling was made on that occasion about this absolute existence and fellowship and communion of God with His people. You and I as Christians are commanded to come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord. 2 Corinthians 6 verses 16 to 18. And in that way we're reminded that we are to live peculiarly here with Him but again, do we not look for that day and for that time that we can absolutely be in His presence and know the grandeur and the greatness of His being with us day by day? Verse number 3 has led us then to see verse number 4. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Former things... Does that adjective former not remind us that for the instance of this description, there are certain things that shall be at that point past history, never again to happen for those who are here under description. We should remember again that these are those whose names were in the book of life. 
they should be ushered into a place, this holy city, this new Jerusalem, this new heaven and earth, where as we see in verse 4, there should be no tears of sorrow, no tears of pain, no tears in which they shall be derived, derived from the case of great scenes of persecution. For after all, he says, there should be no more death. Death, we know, involves separation. Thus we see, never again shall there be separation. Furthermore, neither sorrow nor crying, and there should be no more pain. You and I ha have ourselves, and we have certainly seen it in the faces of others, who bear under the load of pain and affliction and duress, and ultimately, after the passing of some number of years, perhaps, ultimately their life passes on away. And in those closing moments, it can be filled with such pain, anguish, and difficulty. Friend, we look for a place, just like Abraham did, a city which hath foundation, whose builder and maker is God, where there is no such thing as this. No wonder that heaven is such a glorious place, a place where no but death, sorrow, pain, crying, no separation. Notice that these former things are indeed passed away. Isn't it interesting at this point to pause for a moment of contrast? If this is the described state of those whose names are in the book of life, what about the state of those whose names were not in the book of life? Will they know sorrow? Will they know regret? Will they know anguish and pain? Will they know, in fact, the character of death? We might remember that their fate was described as a second death, wasn't it? And didn't Jesus describe that there would be gnashing of teeth and that that rich man was in torment? Wasn't it the case that Jesus described this other place as a place where the things that are not here will be there? That's another good reason for us to want to go to heaven. Not only for what is not there, namely these things that we've just seen like death and pain and crying, but oh how wonderful it'll be to know what is there. God Himself, the Blessed Son and the Holy Spirit and all the blessings forevermore of those things. Verse 4 has only whetted our appetite for a fuller description of this glorious place. Fortunately, chapter 21 will lead us more and more into that description. And with that said, might we look at verse number 5. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these things, for these words are true and faithful. One on the throne. Notice in verse number 5 said, Behold, I make all things new. There's that word new again. We've already noted new heavens and new earth and new Jerusalem. And now he says, I make all things new. This would be a fair time to pause and now revisit. What does it mean to speak of new heavens and new earth? As you know, and no doubt some have even came and knocked on your door and wanted to talk to you about a remade planet Earth, which is supposed to be a utopian place of grand existence. And as we've noted, the Bible doesn't teach that, but then what does it mean when it says new heaven and new earth? We quoted Isaiah 65 and 66 a bit earlier. Peter made reference to it in 2 Peter 3.13. Perhaps now we can finish that description. You and I currently as human beings, we live in an environment that might well be described as heaven and earth. Our feet touch planet earth, but yet we breathe air out of heaven. Notice this place where the birds are. As such, it can well be said our environment consists of heaven and earth. 
It is in that way that the term is now used to describe a new place of existence, a new environment, new heavens, a new earth. Heaven itself is, of course, where our existence shall be. And that is the thrust of the emphasis of new heavens and a new earth. It is not a remade planet earth in any sense. That earth will be forever burned up. This new heavens and new earth is a new abode, a new place of residence, a new absolute place where all of one's needs are met in every regard and in every way. With that idea stated, notice again with me verse number 5. John was told, write. Quite often in the book we've noted the emphasis upon telling John to write something. What you see, John, write in a book. How thankful we should be that John wrote those things in a book. But note the reason. These, things, these words are true and faithful. You and I might well, at least at times, be tempted to doubt the existence of heaven. After all, we can't see it, not yet. And we might often, in fact, if we listen to others who are atheists or those who are materialists or those who are agnostics, they may, by some strong argument, actually tend to cause us to doubt. If ever we reach that point, I'd suggest each of us turn and read Revelation 21.5. The one on the throne, Jesus himself said, John, I'm telling you, what I'm now describing to you is true and it's faithful. You can count on it. There is a heaven. There's going to be some that are going to be there, and there's going to be a lot more that won't be there. Right, these things are true and faithful. May we never doubt, even for a moment, the reality of the things that Revelation 21 describes. In fact, verse number 6, he goes on to say, He said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. It is done, the one said. Doesn't that remind us that earlier on the cross, Jesus, shortly before he gave up the ghost in John 19, said, It's finished, John 19.30. Here, in terms of the absolute finality of all things, the reality of the church, the absolute end of time, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega. The opening and closing letters of the Greek alphabet, Jesus said, I provide meaning and absolute consistency to all things from beginning to end and everywhere in between. Doesn't that help us see that if my life or yours is not founded on the Savior, the major element's missing. There's a void and a hole in my life that cannot be filled with anything else. He provides meaning to all of history beginning to end. I'm Alpha and Omega, the Lord said. The beginning and the end. What's more, I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. Picture one of those first century saints who were in a Roman prison and perhaps the next morning would be led out and put to death simply because they were servants, to the servants of Christ. No doubt they may have been held there for days without food, days without water. Your mouth would be parched and so desirous of but just a small amount of cold water to drink. For a person like that, wouldn't it have been an encouraging thing to read in a book that I am now going to a place where there's abundance of water that will quench my thirst forevermore? That's the kind of place that they were going. Jesus said, I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. 
Jesus had told that Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, as he spoke to her that if you had asked of him, he, speaking of himself, would have given you water that would quench your thirst perpetually. She was so desirous of having that water from which she'd never thirst again. As that conversation unfolded, Jesus taught her much about the service to the Messiah. Here we read about, though, not a physical well of water, that spiritual upwelling of water that will provide for each and every one whose name was in the book of life forevermore sufficient quenching of their spiritual thirst. On to Revelation 21, verse 7. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. The thoughts of being those that inherit. Isn't it interesting how that no finer, no greater statement perhaps than that could be made? You and I are the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3 verses 26 and 27. For all of us who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. But isn't it wonderful to consider what that means? That means that we are joint heirs with Christ and heirs of God, Romans 8, 14 to 17. No wonder we can cry, Abba, Father, and call Him our Father. It is a significant thing to note that in that text of Romans 8, we are inheritors. And yet here again, John, speaking for the Savior, says the same. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. You and I might on occasion inherit something from our parents here. But think about what it should be like to inherit all things from our Heavenly Father. To be enrolled as a member of His family and thus have the remarkable privilege of inheriting from Him. Life everlasting, all the blessings of heaven, and all the benefits that He previously had vouchsafed to the Son, we should be partakers also in some of those blessings. The thought leads us to Revelation 21 verse 8. There are few statements found in these last two chapters that remind us about those whose names were not in the book of life. But here is one of those references. Notice how verse 8 begins the word but. It is drawing a contrast to these previous verses in this chapter. And it says, but the fearful, the unbelieving, and the abominable, and murderers, and whoremongers, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. We have another remembrance. One more reference to who shall not be a partaker of this holy city, a resident of the new Jerusalem, those who are in this place where there's no death or crying or pain. For note, he says here that the fearful, and I've used some of the references and definitions of the Greek words that are translated to remind us what these things mean. That word fearful simply means timid or cowardly. Those who have not with courage responded to the call of the gospel or who even after having done so have timidly refused to obey it with courage and fortitude. Notice also the unbelieving, that is the faithless. Then there's mention of the abominable, that is those in the sight of God are detestable, having never taken advantage of the cleansing power of the blood of Christ. Murderers those who have taken the life of another. And didn't Jesus remind us that those who, in fact, harbor hatred in their very heart are also marked among that same number? Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and following. Whoremongers, that is to say, those who participate in fornication, sexual immorality. Sorcerers, 
those who practice witchcraft, idolaters, those who in fact turn their attention towards some deity, if you will, other than God, liars, those who have no appreciation or very little appreciation at least for the truth and speak forth that which is false knowingly and purposefully, these shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, that same lake that we saw described in the previous chapter. With that said, a brief pause occurs. The opening eight verses have been breathtaking in their scope. With them do we not easily see, though, that verse 9 seems to begin a new discussion. Verse 9 says, And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. At this point, are we not able to see that in verses 9 and 10, we're now reminded that this angel again came to speak with John. And this angel was one of those seven that had poured out the seven vials back in chapter 16. Notice that this angel sets forth before him an invitation. Come hither. Come, John. John, what are you going to see? I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. By now we understand the fullness of that bride, the Lamb's wife. Representative again of those that are the body of Christ, the church. Did not Paul describe it that way in Ephesians chapter 5? As he spoke about a husband loving his wife, and he said, I speak of a great mystery of Christ and his church. Might we never forget then the beautiful scene that there's coming a time when you and I, as the very bride of Christ, shall understand even as it is on, say, the wedding day of a couple. He and she are pledged together till death do us part. For us, as the body of Christ, for eternity we shall never part, together with him forevermore. In fact, as far as that marriage supper is described, Verse number 10 says, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Note the language and the definition with me. That matter described in verse 9, namely the bride, the lamb's wife, is described in verse 10 as the holy city, New Jerusalem. Thus that defines what Jerusalem was back up in verse 2. The church in heaven, not on earth. And again, how longingly we desire to be a part of that number. Isn't it interesting to consider perhaps one other idea in verse number 10? A great and high mountain. How often have the scenes been in the sacred word of God where great things happened on a mountain? It was in fact there at Mount Sinai that Moses saw a burning bush and was shortly thereafter to lead the people of God out of Egyptian captivity. It was on a mountain, namely Mount Moriah, when in fact Abraham was told to offer his son in Genesis 22. And it was on that same mountain that Solomon built the temple in 2 Chronicles 3. It was on a mountain that Jesus was transfigured in Matthew 17. It was on a mountain, in fact, in Acts chapters 2 and following, when we appreciate the glorious goodness of the mountain of the Lord's house having been established. One more time, we see reference to a mountain. This time John was taken there and this time was able to see the glorious goodness of that church in heaven. And thus to verse number 11 we're able to go. Having the glory of God and her light was likened to a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. This verse, verse number 11, 
helps us know that the city under description is glorious beyond compare. That word glorious identifies for us how truly magnificent and extravagant this place is. You and I, in fact, can very well say that heaven, in a real way, is beyond our capability to fully comprehend and imagine. John has described it in words using precious stones and beautiful language. Might we understand, though, that with our limited physical, finite mind, we still cannot fully comprehend it in all of its glory. But might we remember in verse 11, her light was like unto a stone most precious. It's described as being as radiant and as brilliant as a very precious gem or a stone. Notice the particular one mentioned is a jasper stone. We, of course, do not often speak of a jasper stone, but might we know that a jasper stone is a very precious stone indeed, particularly in that day and time. And in fact, I've noted for you that jasper is a fine-grained precious stone having various colors and an exceedingly beautiful appearance. But one interesting point might be worthy of note. The jasper of which we're aware is by itself opaque. That is to say, one is not able to see through it. It's not transparent. But the jasper stone of mention here is clear as crystal. In other words, this is a jasper stone that not only has all the beautiful radiance that one might normally associate with it, it is so pristinely beautiful and powerful, it's as clear as crystal. Again, note with me the, the visualization of what that might very well be. Furthermore, in verse number 12, it had a great wall. It had a wall great and high and had 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels and names written thereon, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. This city is mentioned here as having a wall that immediately presents to us the concept of protection. Those walls built around cities in the Old Testament, such as that of Jericho, was for the purpose of protection and defense against enemies. There should be no enemies, of course, in the sense physically, because remember, all the enemies for this place have been cast into the lake of fire. But the symbolism is also oh beautiful. In this place, you and I shall have all the protection, security, and provision for an eternity. There shall be nothing that we need that is not there. Often in the Old Testament era, they had to go outside the city to find the things they needed, such as the crops were often grown outside the city, and they'd have to leave the city to harvest them and come back. That time they were outside the city walls, they were vulnerable. It was possible for them to be defeated and overcome, but it shall never be so here. We'll never have to leave the glorious confines of this heavenly Jerusalem. But what's more, note that there were twelve gates. And as we shall shortly see in verse 13, on the east, three gates, and on the north, three gates. On the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. Emblematic and symbolic of the fact there's ample entrance for all those who are deserving to be there. In the sense of having their names in the book of life. In the Old Testament era, we remember Jerusalem had more than one gate. This one is said to have three on each of the four sides, reminding us again of the abundant entrance for those who are prepared for that place. At this point, it'd be fair to ask, are you prepared and am I prepared? For this description in verse 14 quickly says, And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, 
and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. We see two references to the word twelve. Twelve gates, twelve foundations. And the twelve names on the twelve gates, notice, were again the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. We saw back in Revelation 7 as well as Revelation 14 that the listing there of the twelve tribes did not correspond identically to the twelve tribes listed in the Old Testament. Thus, we should not read into this that only those that are Jews, for instance, shall enter heaven. That is, in fact, the furthest thing from what this teaches. In fact, in the New Testament, those in the church are called Jews, Galatians 6, verse 16. Those who are of power with God, Romans 11, are those in his body. You and I, in a very real sense, are the Jews of this era. Just as they were his chosen people in the Old Testament, we, his children today, Christians, are the chosen people of the New Testament. Again, the word twelve appears in regard to the foundations of verse 14. Twelve foundations. Again, emblematic and symbolic of the fact that there is absolute sturdiness and unshakability to this place. Never will one have to worry about it being conquered or overcome by an enemy. It never shall be. This place is the glorious abode of God forevermore. With those things, might we at least look at one other picture. Another artist's rendition of this cubical city, as it's described here, this New Jerusalem, this holy city, and as you look carefully, you'll notice that there are three gates on the two sides that we are able to see, at least from the artist's perspective. There would be three more on each of the other two sides for a total of twelve. But that picture, again, at the bottom, it's difficult to make out the foundations. Perhaps this one will do a little bit better. This is another picture, emblematic, again, of the brilliance of the twelve foundations. And if you were able to count them, you would find there's indeed twelve. And the names written on them, as we read in verse number 14, are the names of the twelve apostles. In fact, if you look more closely at that picture and are able to do so, you'll find the names of Peter and Andrew and James and John and the other apostles there enlisted. What is it that that idea and that alone might convey? Twelve apostles listed on the one hand, twelve tribes of Israel listed on the other. It would seem to suggest that in fact there's entrance into this glorious and wonderful place for all of those in either testament who have done the will of God. Those under the Old Testament regime of Moses, those in the patriarchal era, those under the current law of Christ, all who have done the bidding of God and have served Him with devotion shall find their place in this holy city. It's to be noted again the beautiful nature of this city, New Jerusalem. Is it not the case we'd each like to be there, want one day to be there, striving day by day, one day to have that as our final abode? We can certainly conclude the lesson this evening by briefly reminding ourselves of some of what we have seen. Revelation 21 verses 1 to 14 have presented to our mind's eye a description of the city that John saw. As he saw it, he was overwhelmed with it to the point that later in the chapter and in the next we shall find his response to be such that he was truly amazed. You and I as we read this can find ourselves also amazed. For we understand this to be the very place where the faithful shall be, those whose names are in the Lamb's book of life. Is your name written in that book? If it isn't, then your fate was described in Revelation 20 
But if it is, you still can look forward not only to this chapter, but the lesson next Sunday will complete Revelation 21, and we'll even begin to look at Revelation 22, the grand finale in all the book of God. That chapter will present us yet again with reminders.